Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. From Matthew 19, verses 3 to 12. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you heard, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So we have an advisory team at Christ City Church. And Monty is the tallest one of our advisory team. And, uh, and so we have four people, Sean and Anna Mullen, Pat Mullen and Monty, and Leanne and I meet with them twice a year and then intermittently one-to-one. So he's been a great support to us and great advice. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself and tell us a bit about your football team because you're happy about that. Uh, yes, um, Manchester City, let's get that over with. Um, I've been a supporter for 40 years. I'm not a glory hunter. If you want, I can recite the 1970s team for you, but I'm sure you don't want that. Uh, so yeah, I'm very happy. Um, we had Thanksgiving as well during the week, and uh, I had to say that I was very thankful for Pep Guardiola and my wife Gwen, but not necessarily in that order. Um, so yeah, and I, the last time I was with you guys, I was looking after Christian Unions Ireland, which is the Christian Union movement and the all universities throughout Ireland. Uh, we're part of a global organisation in over 165 countries, and since September. Uh, I have moved from looking after Ireland to looking after half of Europe. So um, I'm not traveling as much around Ireland. It's great to be back in Dublin. Uh, But I am traveling around Europe a lot and visiting various countries where the Christian Union movement is much smaller, but where we're trying to get student-led Christian groups established in universities, places like Macedonia, places like uh, Slovakia, Cyprus, Malta, Luxembourg, Greece, places like that, yeah. Well, let, me, uh, let me pray for you and then leave it to you. Father, we thank you for Monty. We thank you for Gwen. We thank you for the support they've given us and to Leanne and I and us as a church. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that your word uh, covers all areas of life and that you want to speak into our lives. And I pray today you'd speak uh, truth and grace into our lives. And just Jesus, as you were able to have the right words at the right time in sensitive issues in your culture, we pray that you give Monty that ability to have the right words in this very sensitive issue in our culture. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Steve. So thanks. Uh, It's great to be here. It's great to be back in Dublin. Um, I'm not so sure I want to thank you for the topic. Um, Yeah, it's not something I would 
voluntarily have chosen. I'm essentially a Bible teacher, uh, but obviously with my work with students, we tackle some of the, the hot issues all the time. It's certainly not something I would have chosen to speak to on my first Sunday visit to a place, because it probably might guarantee there, there won't be a second one. Uh, but let's see what we can do. It's, it, it's difficult because it's a personal issue, and it's a pastoral issue. In fact, it's, it's so personal that in our culture, I think it has become a no-go area for discussion in many areas because it's so much a part of people's identity. It seems impossible to discuss it without appearing to attack people. So the first thing I want to say before we begin is that I don't want us to misunderstand each other and that several things need to be established from the beginning. Firstly, I want to say that definitions are very important. So take the word in our title, gay and Christian, question mark. Now, when somebody says, I am gay, they could mean any one of several things, and this is where it immediately gets very, very muddy. It could mean simply, I am attracted to those of the same sex. It's an issue of feelings. Or they could mean that I am in or that I would like to be in a sexual relationship with someone of the same sex. And that's, if you like, an issue of behavior. Or they could mean I fully identify with the beliefs and aims of the LGBT plus movement, which I would refer to as an issue of identity. Now, that's important because I will try to differentiate between those differences as I speak with the facts actually how we respond, it affects what I'm going to say. Another definition I think I would like us to agree on is the word sin. Because if we are not careful, a phrase such as, I believe gay sex is sinful, can understandably be heard as, you are judging me, you are standing above me, you are condemning me. You may remember a while ago in the UK, the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tim Farron, got into a lot of trouble because he was pushed on this issue and he said that he believed gay sex was sinful. Now, the problem there was that, and I'm sure, I think I talked to, uh, listened to him later and he acknowledges this, that if he had had time to think, and unfortunately politicians don't always have time to think when they're being interviewed, um, he, sh he would have said, well, let's decide what you mean by sinful. You know, a lot, of a lot of newspaper and broadcasting journalists probably don't think about sin very much, um, and they probably don't, that's not part of their vocabulary. And so, therefore, I would have wanted to know what the guy meant by sinful. Because if you understand that sin is not primarily about our actions, but about our nature, if we understand that we're not being selective or picking on homosexuality as the only sin, and if we understand that sin is not selective but universal, that we all share in it, you, me, everyone, then hopefully when we're having this discussion, we can be understood as standing alongside each other, as one sinner beside another, trying to look together at what God thinks about it, as He is the only one with the power to deal with sin. So, definitions are important. 
Secondly, discussion is important. And this is where, to be frank, I think the church has failed big time. The church has been a really, really hard place for people to come out and be honest in this area. Because those who wish to come out fear rejection, judgment, even disgust, and frankly and sadly, that's often what they've received. I'll say more about that towards the end. But it's also the case that the culture is gradually making this an impossible issue to discuss. I know of students who sit petrified when the issue arises in conversations down the pub and someone asks them what they think. And the same rejection, judgment, and disgust is then heaped on them. So neither side can claim a moral high ground in how we have discussed this issue in recent years. During the referendum here in Ireland, I heard one group saying that even to suggest the orthodox traditional Christian perspective is to damage the mental health of gay people. Now, if that is true, then the, the, the discussion is closed. We cannot debate. We cannot discuss. There is, there is no openness. We need to do better than this. So, discussion's important. And thirdly, distinctions are important. This issue is complex, and it is nuanced. And one thing that the culture has done in this area, I believe, is it has removed ambiguity and subtlety. And so, when somebody comes out, they have been told, this is what you are, full stop. This is the summation, if you like, of your identity. It's what you've always been, you're now being honest, this is what you are, and it is what you will always be. In reality, sexuality is a spectrum. Very few, psychologists would tell us, very few are 100% one or the other. Most heterosexuals know what it is to appreciate a good-looking person of the same sex. Perhaps entering into a same-sex relationship is the result of our own complex past. I think this may be particularly true of women who enter into same-sex relationships not because sex with women is the driving force, but out of companionship and because of fear, mistrust, or even hatred of men, often with good cause. Our sexuality is a spectrum, and it is also fluid, or it can be fluid. I think back to my own teenage years and think of how if one or two circumstances had been different, I could very well have found myself more attracted to men, depending on the experience we had, both with young women and young men. But to pigeonhole me as gay forever would have been destructive to my own development. I was still growing up. Now, I don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that's the case for everyone. And I don't advocate what is so-called reversion therapy, the fact that anyone who has same-sex feelings should try to be uh, changed or could be changed. But I do think, I do think freedom needs to be given, space needs to be given for those who may wish to explore what relationships with the other sex could be like to do so and not to be stuck with a label forever. I had a conversation just this month with a colleague, happily married, with three kids, but who told me 
that in his younger days, he started out actually in a same-sex relationship. I had no idea. Now, his story is one story among many, but it is surely as valid as the other stories who say, this is the way I've always been, and I can't imagine having a relationship with the other sex. There is a fluidity. There is a, there is a diversity. There is a spectrum. The very existence of the B in LGBT, bisexuality, apart from being a glaring inconsistency in the LGBT movement, that's something we need to understand. The LGBT movement is very diverse, and there's not always agreement within it, but the existence of bisexuality should alert us to the fact that there is a spectrum and that there is fluidity. Anyway, enough of the introduction. Let me outline why I believe a path of Christian discipleship in this area, where sex, uh, sexual activity is limited to monogamous heterosexual marriage, is not only possible, but that limitation, if you like, where it is either heterosexual marriage or heterosexual or homosexual celibacy is the best way. First of all, the big picture. And this is, first of all, a Jesus' way. The road of discipleship to which Jesus calls us is for everyone. Everyone is welcome. Nobody is outside of His grace. And that's why, in some respects, the title that we have this evening should be a bit of a no-brainer. Gay and Christian, question mark? Well, of course, there's no problem. If you mean same-sex attracted, if you mean that somebody who has feelings for somebody of the same sex, can they be a Christian? Of course. No argument. No debate. No cause for shame. No cause for doubt. Jesus' invitation is extended to everybody equally, regardless of gender or orientation. Whoever comes to me, he says, I will not cast out. He doesn't say anyone, whoever, apart from those who are same-sex attracted. And then Jesus' way is for all areas. His demands for His disciples to follow Him wholeheartedly are true regardless of what your orientation is. It isn't submit your sexuality to my Lordship unless you're same-sex attracted. It's not the demands of the gospel are true except for the members of your family who might be same-sex attracted. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all come with nothing in our hands. We all leave everything that we have at the foot of the cross and we start a journey with God. The demands of our discipleship uh, refer to way, way, way more than our sexuality, but not less than it. Do you get that? Being a Christian is about far, far more than this issue, but it's not about less than this issue. Sometimes I get asked, why are Christians so obsessed with sex? The reality is that, I mean, I, I wish we didn't have to constantly address this issue. I wish we could just carry on teaching the Bible in terms of what it says about a whole lot of other stuff. But this happens to be an issue of the day. And it is often the culture that's bombarding us with it. We need to respond. Christianity is bigger, vaster, a far richer story than how we deal with sex. But sex isn't excluded as if that bit doesn't matter. It's for all areas. And then Jesus' way is about finding our true identity. The main reason at the start that I wanted to make the distinction between someone as an individual having same-sex feelings, and on the other hand, the whole cultural, political, LGBT movement 
is one of identity. There are many people who are same-sex attracted, and they're asking questions like this, how does my primary identity as a child of God and disciple of Jesus relate to these feelings that I have? How do I live a life of obedience where Jesus is Lord of my feelings and not make my feelings more important than Jesus? But on the other hand, the LGBT movement is a movement based firmly on a sexualized identity. This is primarily who you are. And I understand because the sort of questions I'm asking the belief that our sexuality is only part of who we are, that can easily be interpreted by, for example, the LGBT movement as an attack on them as a person. If that is your identity, then when we discuss this, you're attacking me. That's why the debate and the discussion need to be so careful. And we need to establish ground rules at the beginning. I mean, can we have this conversation? Do you understand that I'm coming from a, I'm starting from a completely different place? So much discussion can be fruitless. We'll only have a fruitful conversation when we begin with the issue, who are you? The gospel says that all of us are broken people in need of a Savior. All of us are disciples stumbling along the road of obedience if we're Christians making mistakes, but always seeking to find our true identity in Jesus. Then Jesus' way is demanding. Maybe the reason same-sex attracted people feel picked on, or maybe the reason that they feel the road that they are asked to travel is unfairly difficult. Maybe it's because the rest of us aren't living wholehearted, radical, undivided lives of discipleship in other areas. And of course, those who identify as gay are going to be hurt by our hypocrisy if it seems, on the one hand, that this issue is presented as something we need to be obedient in, but then the church overlooks heterosexual affairs, materialism, gluttony, racism, and a million other things that are present in our lives. And so if, as we shall see, the biblical template for sexual relations is within a monogamous heterosexual marriage, it's not just same-sex attracted people who have to limit their sexual temptations, but also heterosexually single people and married heterosexuals who are tempted outside of their marriage. So, the Christian way is difficult. People don't like it. I mean, teenagers in my youth group never liked it when they realized that the Christian way was save sex for marriage. Someone who comes to me and says, my wife doesn't understand me. I've married the wrong person. I fall in love with someone else. And I say, sorry, your first duty is to go and to be reconciled to your wife and work those issues through. So, when a same-sex attracted person says, it's very unfair to condemn me to a life of loneliness, we need to expand that into the bigger picture. On the one hand, I would say no one said the Christian life was easy for anyone. I would say celibacy does not equal loneliness. 
I would say there are plenty of lonely people in lonely marriages, sadly. And I would say there are plenty of Christians who are single, and while some speak of it as difficult as their thorn in the flesh, some have even been able to speak of the gift of singleness. Whatever state you find yourself in, Paul says, be content therein. So the word to all of us is to start living more radically obedient Christian lives, lives that will attract, lives that will draw everyone, gay people and others, to something different, something worthwhile, something life-changing. Because we can't blame people if they seek refuge in a sexualized identity, if that's the best on offer, and if their experience of the church has been nothing but hypocrisy and negative. And then Jesus' way is a way of hope and healing. It's a good news story. I think one of the unfortunate things in this debate is that Christians are so often on the defensive. Rather than intentionally promoting a good news story about how we were made and loved and about forgiveness and healing in all sorts of areas of our lives, and that central to the gospel is the fact that a gospel makes a difference to us. All of us can be changed. I'm not talking about necessarily having the desire changed. I'm talking about the things that really matter. We can be changed in our attitude, in our priorities, in how we view ourselves, in how we view our sexuality, in how we view our identity. And maybe instead of celebrating who we are, we start celebrating who we could be in Christ. And then finally in this section, Jesus' way is countercultural. In every age of the Christian church, disciples have been isolated and misrepresented by the prevailing culture. From the first century, when Christians were asked to do something very simple, just declare that Caesar is Lord at public events, and they refused because Jesus is Lord. Or when they were asked, particularly if they were in the military, to take the sacramentum vow and say that they belonged to the gods. And they refused because they belonged to the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Right through the reformers refusing to recant the Bible's teachings in the face of church authority, to the 18th century when students were sometimes refused graduation from university in Oxbridge if they attended an evangelical church, to other parts of the world where the oppression historically has been atheist or secular, places like China and North Korea, it has always been the lot of faithful Christians that they will hit against the culture and may have to pay a price for that. It seems to me that today, militant aspects, I'm not saying everyone, but militant aspects of the LGBT movement may make it very difficult for Christians who wish to be faithful on this issue, to get certain jobs, or to be shortlisted for promotion. And you may think I'm being paranoid, but there is enough evidence there about how academics have had funding for research withdrawn, or speakers, not just Christian, but non-Christian feminists other and others, have been deplatformed at universities because they don't conform to LGBT orthodoxy. So, being a Christian in this area will be countercultural, but that's always been the case. 
So, Monty, you say, what is the big issue? Is the Bible really that clear about it? Some will say, well, the Bible says very little. In fact, they'll say Jesus says nothing at all about it. Is that true? Well, certainly compared to issues such as poverty and immigration and heterosexual sins, the Bible does say comparatively little, but it's not silent. Even if it was only mentioned once, that would be significant. More important is the fact that the sin that the Bible says most about is idolatry. Every other sin flows from that. No matter what our orientation, we will be tempted to put something else in the place of Jesus. And on this issue, it may well be that some will choose to put their sexual identity as the most important thing. One young man said, you're asking me to choose between God and gay, and I don't want to make that choice. He was honest. But we all have to choose between God and something. Whatever it is that we want to hold on to as equal with Him. God asks me to choose between Him and a lot of things, and I often don't want to. And maybe that's why I think that the big issue here is not the seventh commandment, but the first or both, which is why the persistent same-sex relationships is probably a breaking of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods except me, as much as the seventh, something we are all guilty of. But some will say to me, are there not those Christians who read the Bible and come to very different conclusions? Well, yeah, throughout history, people have been able to make the Bible say what they want it to say. We all know it's been misused in the past. Not equating these issues, but the Bible has been misused, and people have read it differently issues of slavery, racial supremacy, even domestic abuse. The question is what is the correct reading of the Bible in the context of the whole grand story of God and His relationship with us? Now, I have to say that the vast majority, if you want to look at the next slide, the vast majority of those who do identify as Christian and gay. Don't try to twist the Bible. As one article recently put it, they say, th these, are, these are folks who I would disagree with, but they say that the attempts to make the Bible say something else are actually um, uh, unpersuasive. And they say they prefer to say that the Bible got it wrong, we've moved on, we can't trust the Bible on this issue. A lot has to do, you see, with our starting point. We can either begin with us and our circumstances so, I am same-sex attracted, or my brother or my daughter is same-sex attracted. And then we can try to find ways to accommodate that reality within our faith. Or we can begin with Scripture and then try to reinterpret our experiences and reality in the light of that. That's the fundamental difference. I would contend that if we really want to be faithful to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we need to do that second. What does Scripture say about this issue? Now, this is going to be a very, very, very brief summary, and you'd need a full hour-long sermon or seminar to do justice to it all. I'm going to refer you to a couple of books at the end, but here goes because they might be on your, on your horizon as issues. There is, of course, uh, the, the case of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. 
uh, people will say that, well, the sodomites were guilty and punished for lack of hospitality, social injustice, rape, viciousness towards visitors, not because homosexual activity was, was involved. The references in Jewish literature and early Christian literature, however, all emphasize that sodomite desires were against nature, and they major on the same-sex aspect of them. In Jude verse 7 in the New Testament, that is the case as well. Sodom became synonymous with various perversions for a reason. Yes, it was more, more than homosexual behavior, but it wasn't less. Kevin DeYoung writes that Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of a great many sins. We don't have to prove that homosexuality was the only sin, but show that it was simply one of them. And then there's Leviticus 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. Laws against lying with a man as you would with a woman. The objection here is that Leviticus either applies or it doesn't. So you can't say that the gay verses apply, but the bit about mixed fabrics and shellfish don't. But this is where proof texting by both sides can be problematic. And it's why I would never have a debate on this issue based on these verses. It's not where I would start. It's not where I would finish. If people raised them, I would try to answer it. But it's not the reason that the Christian position is what it is in terms of homosexuality. It's not based on these verses alone. Um, so, uh, and that's why proof texting can be so difficult. Because interpreting Leviticus involves understanding biblical theology, understanding the continuity between the Old and New Testament and the discontinuity, the area where Christ fulfilled certain things and the area where He didn't. So, what was fulfilled by Christ was the ceremonial law and the food laws and all of that. What, was, what, what, what continues was the moral law. It's a bigger issue than we have, subject, that we have time for tonight. But, it's, but just to say that Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, um, opens up the kingdom of God to all nations so that the Jewish people don't have to keep themselves clean from certain foods and fabrics, etc., anymore. But, and we see that in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, we see it in Paul, Peter's vision in Acts 10. So, so much about the shellfish. Okay, I, I'm a prawn fan. You know, I like, I, like, I like my shellfish. But the moral laws including sexual prohibitions, remain. Because they had their genesis not in the Jewish people as a people keeping themselves different for a certain period. They had their genesis in the created order and purpose of human relationships, specifically marriage, which predates the fall. In Leviticus, other sexual practices such as adultery and incest and bestiality are condemned. And it seems strange that you would conclude that of all those sexual laws that remain, the one that shouldn't remain anymore is the one to do with homosexual behavior. The moral law remains. It would be strange if somehow the moral requirements of the new covenant and Christ's new kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit, if actually the way we were to live was less than what was required in the old law. And then in Romans 1, we have Paul's words in verses 26 to 27, which again need to be understood in context. Those who would want to change the Christian position on this would say Paul was talking about excess, about going against what is natural for you, or about exploiting young people. But none of that is convincing. There are other Greek words for pedophilia, etc. 
His argument is based on how the acts go against our natural human function, our created purpose. Now, the interesting thing about this chapter in Romans is that rather than being an example of Paul being a gay basher or obsessed with homosexuality, it's the exact opposite. What he's doing here is he's seeing that homosexuality is part of an argument, but it's not the focus of it. This is a chapter about the rebellion of all mankind against God, and he's writing to a largely Jewish audience, and he begins by listing things that they would have looked down on in others as being self-evidently wrong, self-evidently unnatural. They saw homosexuality as a particularly unsavory Gentile sin. They would have been comfortable with Paul's arguments. They would have been saying, good on you, Paul. Give it to them a bit more. But Paul, of course, was building up to chapters 2 and 3, and he exposes the way in which they as a Jewish people were equally depraved and guilty of grievous sin and idolatry until he gets to chapter 3 and verses 22 and 23. And so, he's been outlining these various sins of the Gentiles, including homosexual behavior, going on to various sins of the Jews. And then he says in chapter 3, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. He's not isolating those who practice homosexuality or picking on them. He's saying, you look down on those guys. You're just as bad. We're all in the same boat. And same is true for the other New Testament references in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy 1. Homosexuality listed along with other sins. Now, to exempt homosexual behavior alone from those prohibitions is a strange type of discrimination. You know, so you know, everything else is still wrong, but, you know, we've, we've changed our mind on that one. Now, we've had to take a whistle-stop tour here, and we've left out a couple more important passages where maybe I, I would have begun. But I want to end with these because supremely my conviction that homosexual practice uh, is, is, is something that we don't celebrate, but something that we see as part of our brokenness and repent of and be forgiven of. That is conviction. It's not based on a verse from Leviticus. It's not based on an obscure Greek word in Corinthians. It's based on something much, much more fundamental. The foundation on which the condemnation of Sodom, the Levitical laws, the argument in Romans are all based. The creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2. When the biblical writers speak of what is natural or unnatural, they don't mean of what we think of as our human nature. You know, I have a gay nature, so it's not unnatural to me. They, they mean natural in terms of how we were created to live and function and relate with one another, particularly with regard to the complementarity of the sexes. In fact, the whole of Genesis 1 and 2 is binary and complementary, heaven and earth, sun and moon, land and sea, man and woman. Without that complementarity, we lose any basis on which marriage should be restricted to only two people or even restricted within a species. Just as adultery breaks God's design, so too does same-sex relationships. And T. Wright is very good in this when he says that um, there have always been aspects of our humanity that owe their being to the image of God, and we celebrate and cultivate our capacity to love, relate, create, reason, pray. And there are aspects of our humanity which owe their being to the fall, and we need to be repenting of and redeemed in some way. And the biblical material and the creation and fall stories make it clear that homosexual behavior belongs to that latter category. 
It's a created order that forms the basis of what Jesus Himself did say on this issue. The passage we read earlier, maybe you were raising your eyebrows because, you know, was that about divorce or something? Well, it's true that Jesus is not recorded as ever having said the word homosexuality, but that doesn't mean he had nothing to say on it. Interestingly, Jesus never used the word idol or idolatry, but he had a lot to say about that. In Matthew 19, Jesus is presented with a question about divorce. Now, those of you who have been trained in conflict resolution will know that in conflict situations, there is the presenting issue, the surface issue, the thing that the conflict appears to be about. You forgot our anniversary again. You snubbed me in the corridor at work. But then there's the deeper real issue underneath. You take me for granted. You don't like me. Well, here the presenting issue is about divorce law. Don't have time to look at that now. It's not today's subject. But sufficient to say that Jesus was, was, was questioned about divorce, but he decided instead to go at the deeper issue, not the presenting issue. He decided to speak about marriage. <coughs> His questioners looked at the negative. They wanted a loophole. He looked at the positive, the gift of marriage and the reason behind it. A man shall leave his mother and father, binary, complementary, and be joined to his wife. And he bases this on Genesis 1 and 2. Now, what is interesting is that he acknowledges the reality of divorce. And one would think that if there was any exception in terms of gender, of man to man or woman to woman, he would have had something to say about that. But no, he simply endorses the created order of heterosexual marriage and the sexual act of two becoming one flesh, being limited to the male-female context. So he endorses Genesis 1. He's also aware of how brokenness affects that. But he didn't extend the provision to include same-sex relationships. He's also aware of the reality of singleness, celibacy, gender dysphoria, all sorts of things that people will have to live with. Those who are eunuchs because they were born that way, uh, those who were made that way, perhaps as a result of the culture or abuse or whatever, and those who choose to live that way for the kingdom of God, an endorsement of celibacy. Jesus himself, of course, was single and celibate. So, there's nothing incomplete about that life. And I finish with this because although we can't deal with all the implications of the topic in a short time like this, we need to acknowledge that the church hasn't dealt with this subject well historically. Clear cases of homophobia and hypocrisy and inconsistency and lack of compassion and any real support given to those who struggle in this area. But we will not help Christians by explaining away the biblical material or accepting homosexual relationships as valid instead of going with the way God intended. So practically, where do I leave you? Well, for, this is a, for, for those for whom this is a personal issue, I would say this. Don't walk alone. One of the advantages of the cultural bombardment on this issue is that it should be easier to talk about it, certainly in churches like this. Develop good, strong friendships with others, single and married, of any orientation. Celibacy doesn't equal loneliness. Whatever your feelings, whatever your desires, whatever your past mistakes, none of that defines you. God doesn't look at you ever and see gay. He sees, your he sees you as my child. And secondly, in a specific way, listen to the voices of some special fellow travelers. 
Those who identify as having same-sex orientation, but who have chosen to live celibate lives or who have eventually found some fulfillment in heterosexual relationships. Their stories are just as valid as the other stories we hear in the culture. People like Rosario Butterfield, Vaughan Roberts, Sam Albury, Jonathan Berry, organizations like True Freedom Trust and Living Out, they're coming up on the screen there. I think at least three of them are available on the, the bookstall. The one on the left is for those of you who really want to get deep into the biblical text, the Hebrew and the Greek and all of that, uh, but they're available. And then uh, there are people who walk with you. And thirdly, specifically, I want to say you don't walk alone. He is with you. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Hebrews doesn't say he was tempted in every way except same-sex attraction. It doesn't say he's able to emphasize in every way unless we have same-sex attraction. I believe he's been there. I believe he walks with us, yet he did not sin. 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. I don't believe that that just means that whatever it is, there's someone somewhere else that has it. I believe that what it's saying is that the seeds of every sin are present within us. They might be manifested in different ways, but whatever you find yourself tempted in, everybody, if they're honest, should recognize that under circumstances, they too could be tempted in that way. You are not alone, either in terms of other Christians or particularly because He has promised and He will walk with you. And to the church, I hope it goes without saying that we should be a place where there's no hierarchy of sin, but a place where people are invited into the story regardless of where they're starting from, where they're invited in and encouraged to journey further on, that we all learn and practice repentance together, and we're together, we stop being defensive, but start being proactive and telling the better story. That's the title of the Glenn Harrison book on sexuality and human flourishing, a better story. Get back to that. I long for the day when we don't have to spend so much time speaking about this issue because it will pass from the cultural agenda and something else you can be sure will take its place, polygamy, age of consent, transspeciesism, whatever it is, and that's where we've got to be careful because we start giving way on one it'll be very easy to give way on others. But we have a better story about how one day our brokenness will be healed forever. We will no longer be tempted, no longer be lonely, no longer be ashamed, no longer be yearning or longing for something we can't have. There will be a day when we will become what we were created to be. Whether heterosexual or homosexual, we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye and we will be like him. Amen.